Well, thanks, Chris. Good evening and welcome. Love to add my welcome to Ming. So great to have you here as we look at this next section of Matthew's account of a life of Jesus. Why don't we pray and ask that tonight God would convict us by His Spirit. To actually ask Him to see how great Jesus is and to show us how we need to change in our thinking, in our action, in our trust and in our lives. Let's, let's pray to our great God, hey? Father God, thanks so much uh, for this opportunity we have to come and sit under your word. We pray that tonight as we come in with all sorts of things going on in our head, with a world at unrest, and with things that we're facing, whether it's uni or work or family or division, we ask that by your spirit you would speak to us tonight, that through your word you might show us your son, you might captivate us by him more and more. Do a great work in each of our hearts tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the biggest battles we face in life is the number of decisions that we need to make. Do you find that? Life is full of so many decisions. You've got to work out, you know, do I get up yet or not? Now, that's a big decision. Like, good on you for getting up. Well done. Like, it's, it's great. Some of us are like, do I eat breakfast or not? Do I, do I go to class today or not? Do I go to work today or not? Uh, do I take this route or that route? Or, or then there's bigger decisions. Do I date this person or not? Do I, do I listen to what this friend is saying or not? What course do I take or not? What job do I take? There are so many decisions. Do, do you feel that? Do you feel the, the kind of weight of that? <laughs> decisions tire us because in every single one of those decisions, we need to make a choice. And in every single one of those decisions comes with it a temptation to do what maybe we ought not to do. To think about, I want to do what feels right rather than what I know is right. You know, those times you're like, oh, I just, I just want to do this. I don't care what others think. I don't care what I think. I'm, I'm just going to go and do it, even though you know it's dumb. Like, how many times have we eaten too many pieces of pizza? Yet I keep doing it. I'm like, but it's so good in that moment. And you always feel bad afterwards. Pizza is like that. But there's a whole heap of other areas that come where the consequences of our temptation are even larger. From the beginning of humanity... <laughs> We've had another voice trying to help us to reject the true and living God. It's a voice that all of us have listened to, a voice that even though each of us have got control over it, our own desires well up and when we come and listen to that voice, it's kind of like that, that bad voice, that little evil voice, the two people on your shoulders. There's like the, the white one and, and the dark red with the pitchfork one, right? Now, we don't necessarily hear voices. I, I don't hear voices in case you're like, well, this guy's loopy. <laughs> His name is Satan, and his sole purpose with you and me is to help us not come towards the God who made us, but to think that we are the center of the world, to, to by our own desires lead us away from the true and living God. And so far in this point in, in the book of Matthew, and this far in human history, Satan has had 100% success rate with every single human being. He's been able to lead every single one of them to temptation and to reject the true and living God. He's like, I'm a winner. I'm the man. My success rate is phenomenal. Until Matthew 4. It's this very passage that we just had read so well for us that we see Satan come head to head with someone who says no. Come with me. Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. There's a first understatement for the night. 
He's hungry. Of course he is. But what we also read is that Satan exists. He is real. There's a real being called Satan, and he's trying to pull people aside. And at this moment, at this point in human history, he's got God's promised king in his sights. Matthew 4 is high stakes. If he can lead Jesus away, then God's whole plan throughout all human history is going to come tumbling down. And he has Jesus exactly where he wants him. Jesus has been fasting. He's been spending a period of time not eating to remind himself to keep depending on his Father, to cause him to pray, to recognize that everything we have comes from God and going without is not some super spiritual kind of moment where you kind of are closer to God. Well, you will get closer to God if you keep fasting more than 40 days. You'll meet him. But, but it's right on the edge of, of what's kind of humanly possible. They said those last five days in the 40 would have been an absolute shocker. Satan has him where he wants him. Do you find that? When you're hungry, isolated, and tired. Then at times that Satan comes in and he says, ah, oh, just give up, just walk away, just do this thing. And you know it's not a great thing to do. You know it's not what God says. You know it's not even what you want to do, but you feel this draw towards saying, ah, oh, stuff it, I don't care. It's like our, 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 our um, normal kind of barriers go down and we do things that are not right. Hungry, isolated, tired, hit. When you're feeling hit by Satan, remember those words. Get some sleep, eat some food. Don't be hangry. But we're going to see what happens when Jesus faces Satan. Round one, verse three. Then the tempter approached Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, Matthew just said the week before that, you know, even if um, all the Jews had kind of been wiped out, God could have raised up descendants of Abraham from the stones. This is the power of God here. How easy it would have been for Jesus, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, to say stones turn into bread. And it wouldn't have just been boring bread. It could have been like Italian herb and cheese, right? Or, 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 you know, like bacon and cheese, except no, it wouldn't have been bacon, right? Because he's a Jew. So no, no bacon there. So, but, but he could have just done that. This is, this is God the Son. But Jesus never does a miracle for himself. It's always for the glory of his Father and for the need of others. In a few chapters' time, he's going to feed 5,000 people and then another 4,000. This guy can do it. Jesus is amazing. So the temptation to provide satisfaction to himself in that moment, to, to, to show his power, I mean, Let's be honest, that's what we would have done. I'll show you, Satan, watch this. Boom! And it would have been like this amazing bakery. You're like, ah, can you do that? No. No, he doesn't say that. He says this. It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus here isn't saying that we don't need food, right? We do need food. But there's more to life than a full stomach. There's more to life than a full bank account or a full social calendar. Only God provides satisfaction, and God does that through fulfilling His promises in His Word. Let me say it another way. Bread is not enough for life. Dependence on God is what makes life. A temptation for Jesus here is to relieve Himself from suffering outside the plan and purpose of His Father, to make his own plan, to take satisfaction into his own hands. And how often is that what you and I want to do? To move outside the plan of God, to think ourselves are the center of the universe and bring satisfaction into our own hands, because in that moment, it will be better.
there's a difference between testing and temptation that we need to understand as we come in here. You see, God does test us, but He never tempts us. In the original, the word for test and tempt are actually the same word. You've just got to work it out from the context. Temptation has its aim of making us fail. Satan wants to tempt you and me to destroy our faith. That's what he wants. He, he wants us to trip. He sets something up and pushes it into way that kind of like as a trap, kind of like home alone, all over, right? A test, which is what God does, comes with a hope and expectation and resources to, to pass that test, to, to go well. I mean, that's why a good lecturer sets tests to help you go, yes, I've got this. Yes, I'm pulling my, my learning together. So God tests us so he might strengthen us to recognize he is in control and he is good. Round number one, Jesus wins. But that's not enough for Satan. He wants to go again. Look at verse five. The devil took Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, the very, very top of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, remember, John the Baptist had just said, here he is. This is the one who is coming, who will bring in the judgment of God. You are God the son, that picture of Psalm 2 and the king ruling over all the nations. And then at his baptism, we heard that voice, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. What does Satan do? Come straight in like he did in the garden. Are you really the son of God? <laughs> if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This time the temptation for Jesus the temptation that Satan brings before him isn't satisfaction. It's not money magazine or kind of best food living or whatever kind of fancy food things we look through. It's not house and garden or Vogue or Playboy. Satan comes at him to tempt him. You ready for it? With the Bible. With the Word of God. He misquotes Psalm um, 91 verse 12. If you are the Son of God, God promises He'll take care of you. See, we've got to remember the difference between God and Satan. God wants you to trust him and not test him. But Satan wants you to test God and not trust him. Say it again. God wants you to trust him and not test him. But Satan wants you to test God and not trust him. Here Jesus is, right outside the temple. What was the temple? The Father's house. It's the place where he kind of would have felt like his father was the closest. I don't know about you, but for me growing up, whenever I was around my dad as a kid, I kind of felt just that little bit more invincible. You know, your parents are around, your dad's there, he's nearby, and some kid comes up and goes, I'm going to take your car. If your dad's just over there, you go, no, I'm, no you're not. You see how big my dad is? You can't, when you're close to your dad, there's this sense of, of closeness and security that comes. And Satan's lying to Jesus, here you are at the Father's house. If you think you are the Son of God, if you think you are God the Son, if you really reckon that at this moment, prove it, prove it. Like the schoolyard bully. Go on, jump. He promises he'll catch you if you are the Son of God. Your Father's right here. And the temptation would have been to show him up. For many of us, it's the times that we feel safe, comfortable, around friends, around other Christians maybe, that we let our guards slip. When we're so close to home and our guards aren't up. 
They get a little too familiar with a friend or a colleague. They're a Christian, they go to church, and before long you find yourself doing something you ought not to be doing. What happened here? You might be hanging out with friends from, from church and others that you think, yeah, this, this is a safe kind of zone and your language starts slipping and your conversations slip into talking about things that aren't building up others. But we're in it together. God will protect us. He'll look after us because he's, he's given us his spirit and we just let it slide a little. As we understand more and more of the scriptures, we see that it is God the, is the one who holds us. He is the one who holds us. But we can so easily presume upon the proximity of God to us. I can go close to the edge because God will hold me. I, I know my Bible. The writers of the Bible were reformed. I know that. God is sovereign. He's in control of it all. Like It's very clear. God is in control of the universe and He's in control of my salvation. And so I'm free to walk real close to the edge. I can flirt with sin. I can go over here because God's got me to the end. He won't pull me away. It's all right to skip meeting together, not join a connect group, kind of just... You know, be away from church for ages. That, that won't be, God will have me to the end. I'm a Christian. Friends, this passage and other parts of the scriptures are the sign God's putting near the edge of that cliff, saying, don't go here. That's the way he keeps us in. Don't go near the edge. Satan loves you feeling comfortable near the edge. Amongst friends, just go for it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't be so judgy. Don't be so kind of black and white. You've got to think through. This is fine. It doesn't matter. He'll even use God's Word to try and pull us away, to twist and turn, and twist and turn what God's Word says to mean something very different. You see, that's one of the problems with the name it and claim it theology. You know, that, that kind of view that says, look, if, if you've got a need or problem, just claim it in Jesus' name. Name, name the problem, claim it, and have enough faith, and God will heal you of your sickness. Or he'll, he'll, he'll do this thing, He'll give you that job, He'll bless you in all these ways. Now you read the Scriptures, and you see that God does promise to bless us, but not necessarily here and now. Not in those ways. It's actually bordering on, on kind of testing God, not trusting God. Satan loves you and I to use the Bible's verses out of context, to pressure people to... Trust God in areas that God doesn't promise. That's a success for him. Because what happens? You're like, I'm trusting God that he'll give me a Ferrari. It's great. Because, you know, God says he'll bless me. I've read Jeremiah 29, and it says God has plans to prosper me. So I know that means a Ferrari, right? And so I'm saying this, I'm saying this to my friends. Then eventually my friends believe it, and then they're going, I don't see the Ferrari, Ron. Your God doesn't keep his promises. God never promised a Ferrari. <laughs> and Satan says, Success. Now you doubt the God who didn't say those words in the first place and you're going to work, walk further away from Him. See, anyone can come along and say the Bible says this. We can take one part of it and, and pull it out of its context and say it. But someone who knows the Bible well will say, yes, but the Bible also says. We must understand the Bible as a whole big picture to let Scripture interpret Scripture, not just take one verse and then go, go do it. And it take the part where Jesus says to go get a donkey and take it from there and just say the Lord needs it. And so we rock up to the Ferrari dealership. The Lord needs it. It's got a donkey on the front, right? It's got a little horse. Read your Bibles, people. You must not steal. Mm. Now, we need to read the Bible as a whole to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so often I see people take one part of the Bible and say it as if it's the only part. 
No, we have to read what God has said to us in the fullness of his word and let scripture interpret scripture. Such an important point. So Jesus says to Satan, verse 12, sorry, verse 7, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. God doesn't have to prove his power to us by healing us every time we ask. Oh, he, he may heal us. He never promises that he'll do it this side of Jesus' return. He doesn't have to prove his power to us by healing us every time we ask. He doesn't have to prove his love to us by giving us everything we ever ask for. He's shown his love and his power unmistakably and outrageously as Jesus walks to his death and dies in our place. He died with you and I in mind. To offer us life forever. Who else do you know that has loved you like that? Who else do you know that has the power to lay down his life and take the penalty for the sin of the whole world on his shoulders? Everything else he gives us is just icing on the cake above that, isn't it? It's amazing. We've been offered life that lasts forever. In Matthew 12, Jesus will say, it's a wicked and sinful generation that asks for a sign. Come back to the Word of God. We ought not to test the Lord our God. Well, round number three, verse eight. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him, get this, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. What an incredible promise. All the kingdoms of this world and their splendor, all their loot, all their cash, all their power, all the kind of cool things they have. Think about all the wonders of the world. That's all, Jesus, all of this could be yours. He's come in to be the king over all kings, to dash the nations. And here is Satan in some way offering Jesus all of this stuff. A few years ago, I got an email from a Nigerian prince. Pretty, pretty sure, pretty sure he was a Nigerian prince. Um, he didn't know English super well, uh, but the email did make sense. He'd come from an incredibly wealthy family. Um, he's in Nigeria, there's kind of war going on, couldn't get his money out. All he needed me to do was to pay some money to set up a bank account so he could transfer this money into my account and I'd be rich. And I was like, wow. Now, we all know there's no Nigerian prince, right? We know it's a scam. I mean, who, who's received those emails? Can I show of hands? Kind of got some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, which of you, when you've received them, has gone, but maybe it's true? Just a little bit of you that's gone, oh, I wonder if I could do this just a little bit more. I wonder, like, imagine what it would be like. And there's this sense where we want it to be true. <laughs> and so what we start to do is we... We see these promises and we think, well, maybe I can work out a way of getting this million dollars another way. Maybe I should try it. But we don't think about what the cost is. Now, for a Nigerian prince, you might spend a couple of grand and find you miss out, you've been scammed. Wow. The cost of the splendor of the kingdoms of the earth. Satan says, if you will just do this one little thing, bow down and worship me. There's a sense there where you go, nah, Jesus won't do that. <laughs> like, why would he? He's the promised king. Why would he bow down? He's created all things. But you've got to remember, he's also man. And he knows what he's signed up for. He's come to earth to come and die in our place and face the wrath and anger of God for everything everyone had done from the creation of the world through to the end of all time would be put on his shoulders. Can you imagine the pain of God's anger poured out on him as he died on the cross? Not just the physical pain but the wrath of God 
Short-term loss, bow down to Satan. Long-term gain. I'm the king of the world. It got me thinking, could Satan actually offer this? In John, he's called the prince of this world. 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. But the thing to remember is that nothing happens outside the will of God. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside the will of my father, Jesus says. Satan's victory comes when you start to believe he actually has something to offer you. When you start to think the Nigerian prince might have some cash. Satan might be true that this way, kind of sex outside of marriage, a different view of, of I'll, I'll keep that money that's, that's, the government kind of gave it to me, but I'm going to keep it rather than put it where it needs to be. We start thinking of all these ways to keep things for ourselves outside of God's will of doing what is right. And Satan's like, yeah, that's okay. It's good. He wants to give you the impression that he's in charge when he's not. He is a liar and has been a liar from the beginning. This world belongs to its maker. And Satan has misunderstood who he's faced with. The one who created all things. That all things were made for him and through him and by him. You never understand the meaning of life to its fullness until you understand that it's all about Jesus. That he is the one that has made it all. You were created to be in relationship with Him. You were made for Him. You won't find life and satisfaction and meaning outside the one who made you. Now, the temptation for Jesus here is to be crowned with glory without needing to wear a crown of thorns first. It's to be crowned with glory without needing to wear a crown of thorns first. So Jesus replied, verse 10, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The original, it's only two words. Satan, leave. There's something I love about that. Just get out, go. If only Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if only Adam had said to the serpent, Satan, leave. Instead of standing silently next to his wife as she ate the fruit of a tree of a knowledge of good and evil, how our world would have been different. If only Israel in the wilderness, when they were tempted to, to hear the word of the spies when they came back and said, these people are big and large and have large fortified cities, God won't take us in. If only they said, Satan, get behind me. Satan, get lost. And had trusted God and gone into the promised land. If only I said it to myself. All the times by my own desires, I allow myself to be tempted. When that little voice in my head says, it's okay, just go for it. When Satan rolls, whatever it is that would tempt us most before us across our field of vision. Things that we, we know we shouldn't see. Things we know we shouldn't touch. An opportunity to build our own glory and look at me or the kind of dollar sign at the expense of truth. They're two of the most powerful words we could ever utter. Satan, leave. And we can utter them because Jesus came and died in our place. Because though he was tempted and felt the full weight of temptation and did not give in, he's done it for us. He's offered his perfect life in our place. So Satan has nothing to say to us, nothing he can do from us. He can't take away anything. What's the worst he's going to do? Kill us? No, Jesus has died in our place and risen again. Our hope is in the future. So therefore, as we trust in God the Son, who was tempted in our place for us, we can say, Satan, leave. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him 
only. Friends, that's a verse to write on our bathroom mirror. It's a verse to keep in our minds all the time. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. When temptation comes up, worship the Lord your God, serve Him only. Life to its full is found in worshiping the true and living God, not this false thing. It's a great way to remember it. Write it on our wall. I don't know. Make it your password. (laughs) If everyone does that, it won't be very secure. But anyway, think about the ways you can keep that before you as Jesus does. Sometimes I look over the way I respond in these situations and I think, man, I'm so stupid. This is what I love about Jesus. He here is shaped by the truth. Why wouldn't I want to worship him? What could possibly be better than life that does not end? That life that goes on forever, than my sins forgiven and relationship with a true and living God. Romans 8 says that through the work of the Spirit, we are called children of God. We have life and hope and assurance and relationship with our Creator. Look at verse 17 of Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. (laughs) That's amazing. Why would I want to worship anyone else? What have they got to offer me? It's all like secondhand junk. It's like Macca's kids' toys. (laughs) It takes a certain type of fool to continue worshipping yourself when the creator of the universe has walked in the room, doesn't it? But we do it so often. I do. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Why wouldn't we worship Him? Well, because it's hard. We've got to remember the second half of that verse in Romans 8.17. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Life's hard. The Christian life is not without its quota of suffering. But if our Saviour suffered, what makes you think His servants will get it any easier? Life is hard. We do need to count the cost of following Jesus here and now, of trusting God when a world is hell-bent on going another direction. Trust that He will bring us to glory in His way through the ups and downs of life when things are hard, knowing it will involve denying ourselves and placing Him at the center. When temptation comes, count the cost of following Jesus. Remember, He's the one who was tempted for us and He did not give in. But also remember the phenomenal blessing of worshipping the Lord your God and the blessings that He gives us because it's worth it. Now, in every single one of these accounts, we have this amazing picture of Jesus not giving in to temptation. And we see He's just come from His baptism where He's gone into the water, He's risen up and the Spirit has descended on Him. He's filled with the Spirit. We read in 4 verse 1, He was led by the Spirit. And lots of people kind of go, you know what? We need more Spirit in in our worship. We need more spirit in our life. If God would just you know, give us His Spirit more, if we'd seek the Spirit more, then we could say no to sin more, and we could say, um, I have all this kind of power to live the spiritual life. But I want to show you what the most Spirit-filled person, the one who most rightly responds to the work of the Spirit does. Do you see what His weapon of choice is? Every single time. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. The one who was with the Father, who spoke creation into being, who'd been in perfect relationship with his Father forever. How does he defeat Satan? He doesn't quote some heavenly conversation he was having with the Father before creation. It's like, oh yeah, well, you know, Dad and I were chatting before we made you, Satan. And we decided these things and you've got these problems. And he doesn't quote some kind of amazing thing out there. He quotes what God has said through his servants in the Scriptures. 
what we have before us right here and now. The spiritual response to Satan's temptation is to come to what the Spirit has spoken through God's servants throughout time that He's given to us. Scripture. You want God to show you amazing things? You want the Spirit to lead you amazing places in your character and your life? You want God to defend you and stop falling into temptation and to build you up and make you more and more like Jesus? Then open up the sword of the Spirit. Come to God's Word. Grow in it. Understand what God is saying to you by His Spirit through His Word. I say this as much to myself as I say it to to all of us here tonight. This is how God speaks. We need to listen to Him. When you find yourself tired or there's lots on and I'm busy, I find myself pulling back from reading the Word of God. Not that I don't want to read it, just I've got lots of things to do. You know, there's lots going on and things are tough. And so I think, yeah, I need to read God's Word less right now. No, Rowan. We need to come to God's Word and let it shape the way we think and reframe the way we view the world around us. We need to know God's Word because Satan does. And he'll use it against us. You know, if you're sloppy with the Scriptures, Satan will absolutely destroy us. That's why at church, we don't preach five tips to being a better person, a better student, a better worker, a better father, mother, husband, wife, kind of whatever it is. We open the Word of God and let God's Word speak and shape and mold us. It's why connect groups are so important for us as a church. Being around others with the Word open, being planted in the Word of God and letting that shape and and mould us and having others to hold us to account and to celebrate life together and to think through how we might keep putting Jesus first. Satan loves you not being in a connect group. It's awesome. Excellent. Isolated. It's going to make you hungry and tired and we're sweet. (laughs) That's why connect groups should have food. Side point. For some of us at the moment, we might feel like things are going really well. It might not be like, oh, I'm not listening to the Word of God. It might be like, man, my quiet times are great. I'm in a great spot. I'm coming to church. I'm in a good rhythm. I feel pretty all right at the moment. And Satan's like, awesome, that's good too. Because it's those moments when we think that everything's going fine, that we're not reflecting. And we don't see the need that we have. Friends, we're at war. And Satan wants all the soldiers to take the bullets out of their guns to take their boots off when they go to bed and to forget where they left their helmet. He's like, brilliant. Now come back to the Word of God, as Jesus does. Now here, Jesus tells Satan to leave. And he kind of does. But I'm not convinced that Satan thinks he's lost. Because of what happens next and the fear of man. Matthew tells us in the very next verse that Jesus heard that John the Baptist, the one that had been proclaiming, here comes the judgment of God, John the Baptist had been arrested, that he was in prison. He'd been boldly declaring the coming judgment, had been the one who'd been doing that, had been put in prison because he was calling out the king. Now, some would say that Jesus should stand up here to the world around. He is God's promised king after all. We've just heard from Psalm 2 last week that the kings of the earth are warned, that God laughs at them when they pretend to be kings because he's sending his true king in. John the Baptist has said Jesus is that king. Surely God's plan here is to boldly push aside the world's kings, to rip John out of prison and say, ha, I'm the real king now, right? But at first appearance feels like Jesus runs. Look at, look at verse 12. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
And we heard a couple of weeks ago from Ming where those places were. They're where your country cousins live. They're nowhereville. He's in Jerusalem in the center of it all, but he's like up north, away in the kind of place where there's like lifestyle blocks and people have chickens and cows and veggie patches and they kind of go a bit weird and just hang out on their own because they don't want to kind of say much with the world around us. The people that are afraid of Aucklanders because there's too many people there, they kind of pull back, right? Maybe there are other reasons they're afraid of Aucklanders. The fear of man is incredibly strong and maybe Satan has rattled Jesus' cage. When trials come, when the world closes in, so easy, isn't it, to sink our heads into the sand, to go with the flow. To not make any waves in the world around us, to kind of keep the peace. But remember, that's a lie straight from Satan. We ought not to do that. We need to boldly keep trusting God and His plan. The question here is, has Jesus been rattled? Is this exactly where Satan wants Him to go? To the backwater, clear Him out of the center, let's get Him away. But then when you look carefully, Jesus is doing anything but shrinking back here. Look at verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet of Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali along the road by the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land, the shadow of death, the light has dawned. It looks like Jesus is running, but this is the plan and purpose of God. God's plan and purpose is not usually our plan and purpose. He's a different way of doing things. And here he goes to those areas to fulfill what he promised he would do, that out of those regions would come a light for the whole world. For those living in the shadow of death, a great light has come. And here Jesus goes to begin his new movement. What does he say? Verse 17, from then on, Jesus shut up, said nothing. And lived in Galilee. No, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn back to God. Recognize his kingdom. Everything that was promised in Psalm 2, everything that's been promised throughout the whole Old Testament is near because the king is near. We ought not to pull back. We ought not to shrink away from the fear of man, but we need to trust the word of God in the way that we move forward. We're in a time in history, at least for ourselves, where there's incredible division. Where people are saying we need to go out against the government. We need to show that mandates are wrong. We need to kind of push all sorts of things, that, 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 the things that are happening in the world around us. Like kind of what's happening with Putin and Russia. And you're like, man, we need to stop this. And there's a sense where we really do need to think about loving the world around us and, and seeing governments brought into check. But Jesus doesn't run to John the Baptist's prison cell and rip him out. The most important thing for him to do is to preach the kingdom of God. So you can have the best laws in the world. You can set up the best government ever. But in the end, those laws, well, we've seen what happens with the best law in the world, God's law in the Old Testament. It just showed people how sinful they are because we all break it because we're sinful. No, we need someone to do it for us. And that's what Jesus is going to do. That's what Jesus has done. And so he goes and preaches the kingdom of God is near. Repent and turn because the king has come. One of Satan's biggest wins at the moment is us taking our eyes off the preaching of the gospel and focusing on the injustices of the world around us, so much so that we take our foot off the accelerator of pointing people to Jesus. Satan's like victory. But God has other plans. He is in control. 
And so the reminder to us is keep proclaiming the truth. But it's not only the fear of man that sidetracks us. It's also the allure of work. And in the next interaction, we see some people give up their entire kind of way of living. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's what fishermen do. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. At the moment, many of us would want Jesus to go rip John the Baptist out of prison. Jesus goes to the countryside, preaches the kingdom, and gathers people to himself to proclaim more of who he is and what he's done. The same thing then happens for two guys called James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder. Every time I read about James and John, I've got thunderstruck playing in my head. Sons of thunder. You're like, woo, they came in. I kind of like that, I think. ACDC didn't write it. It's not an Australian song. But the call of Jesus here is to leave everything. If you've recognized who I am, drop your nets, come and follow me. Leave all the security you have, all the support that you're going to give to your family. Remember, there's no other way. You can't go to the wind's office and get some money in that way. These guys left their very way of living because they'd come face to face with the creator of the universe. Following Jesus has huge costs, but it's worth it. I'm not saying here that we can't work, that work is bad or wrong. It's not at all. We need to, to work to be able to earn, to be able to look after our family, to be able to give to kingdom causes, to be able to do good in the world around us. But we see Jesus' call here means this very thing that could be the idol, this worship of work, the allure of work, is something that's dropped when you come face to face with him. Maybe you're here tonight going, oh, look, Christianity, I might check it out later. It sounds good, but there's some things I'm like, nah, I'm just getting to this point in my career. I'm just starting this new course. I'm just doing this new thing. When James and John and Simon and Andrew came face to face with Jesus, they dropped everything and followed him. I encourage you tonight. This is a man that's worth dropping everything for. He who gives up what he cannot keep is no fool if he will gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jim Elliot said. Work can be a great idol that causes us to not respond to Jesus well, to be a temptation, but so can the idol of health. Look at verse 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought all to him. Those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. You think Jesus going to Galilee and to the backwaters was bad? Everyone now flocks to him because they're hearing what's going on. It's easy at this point to think Jesus was all about healing the sick. That's what his ministry is about. You know, feeding the poor, healing the sick, that, that's what he is on about. But did you notice as he's doing it, the thing that he's gone to do is to preach the good news of the kingdom. But the problem is, I think people flock to Jesus, even today, not necessarily because we recognize he's king, because we want healing, we want a better life. We want our best life now, and Jesus might provide that. So we come to him and we think, Jesus can be my optional extra, my add-on, my insurance policy. But he's calling people to himself. Yes, he's healing them. But they're to show, those healings are to show who he is and what he's bringing in. Do you know every single one of those people Jesus healed, every single one of them died? Couldn't Jesus have healed them for life? Or maybe he was going to. 
So if they still died, why, why did he do it? Well, I'll tell you why. Because when the king comes, he brings some of the kingdom with him. When the king comes, he brings some of the kingdom in with him. At the end of World War II, there are a large number of prisoners of war that were still in prisoner of war camps across the Pacific. The war was ended. Japan had kind of um, had said, right, we're, we're, we're out. They kind of raised the white flag. The war was over, but these people, these prisoners, were still in these prisoner of war camps. And some of them had lost kind of half their body weight. They'd been in there for years. They're feeling the burden of, of not being able to get out. They can't experience the freedom that was already won for them by the Allied forces because they didn't kind of know it was there and it kind of hadn't reached them yet. And so they're still caught up in these moments. And so what happened was the Allied forces decided to fly the bombers over all these areas where the prisoner of war camps were and they would drop pamphlets, letters. I want to read to you one of those letters. This is an actual letter. There's a picture of it on the screen. August the 28th, 1945. Allied prisoners... The Japanese government has surrendered. You'll be evacuated by Allied nation forces as soon as possible. Until that time, your present supplies will be augmented by airdrop of U.S. food, clothing, and medicine. The first drop of these will arrive within one or two hours. Now, can you imagine getting that letter? Being like, yes, this is coming. This is so exciting. And then a couple of hours later and for the next few weeks, as the war was kind of already won, they flew over and instead of dropping bombs, they dropped kind of clothing and food. And, and you're like, wow, what was happening here? Well, as Jesus steps onto the world scene, proclaiming that the kingdom of his father is near, he can't help but show a breakthrough of what that kingdom will be like. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Sickness and death done away with. When Jesus steps onto the world scene, he sees that and says, that's not the way I want it to be. And so he heals those around him, not because he's here for the healing, but because he's bringing in a kingdom. A kingdom that will not end. A kingdom where there is no death or mourning or crying or pain for those have all been done away with. It's so easy to idolize our health, isn't it? Particularly in a COVID world where there's disease and death at our door and go, what is God doing? Why isn't he healing us today? Why is he not doing these miraculous things? Well, because we're not thinking with the Spirit. We're not using the Spirit of God. No, what a load of crock. Jesus came to preach that he is the King. And if you come to him and trust him, that he's faced the penalty for your sin on your behalf, that he's faced the temptation from Satan and he's withstand it to the end. And he gives us a taste of what is to come, relationship with God now through his word by his Spirit. He doesn't promise that he'll heal us all here and now, although he can. But he promises when he comes back, all things will be put right. <laughs> Friends, the call of Jesus to each and every one of us tonight is that he is the king who is worth following. He is the one that's worthy of worshipping. He's the one who suffered for us, was tempted in our place. He is the one that brought in his kingdom and he says, when temptations come, don't give in. Remember, I've done it for you. I know you'll stumble. I know you fall. I've lived the perfect life where you trust me. God is giving us time to tell the world around how amazing he is and point people to him and to live for him. The question for us tonight is, who will we listen to? The call of Satan or the call of Jesus? And then if we listen to Jesus, how will we live for him? We need to come back next week as we look at Matthew 5 to hear about how we live for him. But why don't we pray that we would see Jesus as the king like no other and worship him. Let's pray.
Lord God, tonight we are so thankful that you've revealed yourself through your word and by your spirit. That in human history, Jesus stepped in, into the world and that he was, though tempted, he did not give in. We admit that so often that's not what we do. And we give in to our own desires, to the things Satan rolls before us. Please forgive us. Tonight, help us to take the time to work out where we are being tempted, to chat to those that we've come with or those around us, those in our connect group, and to talk about where, where we struggle and, and help us to be people that aren't judgmental but point people back to the judge who died in our place. Father, as we're tempted to bring about what we think is right by our own means, excite us with your word. Bring us back to the scriptures. Help us to be so captured by who Jesus is and what you're saying to us in your word that we, we live for you according to your plan. Help us to let scripture interpret scripture so that we, we don't malign your word. And tonight we ask you to send us out into your world to do the task that we have been made for. To live for you, to worship you, and to proclaim the goodness of the King you sent, your son Jesus. May you help us to be people and a church that do that every day for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.